0: Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today we will be speaking with Tim Buckman, MD, PhD, MCCM. Dr. Buckman is the founding director of the Emory Center for Critical Care. He is a past president of the Society and the incoming editor of the Society's flagship journal, Critical Care Medicine. Today, we'll be speaking about his Congress talk where he discussed strategies for incorporating advanced practice providers into the ICU team. Dr. Buckman, thank you for joining us today.
1: It's a privilege to be here, Dr. Lin.
0: So, um, I'm going to ask you uh, some questions about how to um, go about all of this and how it came about. So, what are some of the trends you see surrounding the use of nurse practitioners and physician assistants?
1: Across the United States, we are seeing a significant uptick in the use of advanced practice providers in critical care and in other fields as well. The well-publicized physician shortage has affected many disciplines, primary care, of course, being the one in the mind of the lay public, but it's reached the intensive care unit as well. As predicted by Derek Angus and the Compax Group over 15 years ago, we are now seeing the divergence between the supply of critical care providers and the demand which is fueled by the baby boomers heading Medicare age.
0: And how did you personally get interested in this area? When I came
1: to Emory as the founding director of the Emory Critical Care Center, one of the first things I did was to poll our communities of stakeholders, our physicians, nurses, allied health personnel, patients, families, administrators, payers, and ask them, what were the important attributes of critical care? What are the things that mattered to them? And we came very quickly to a list of three items, quality by whatever metric you choose, Value meaning we had to deliver the care at a price that patients, families, and the nation could afford and access, meaning if they became critically ill, we wanted to get them into the appropriate care environment quickly so that we could mitigate the acute process and prevent secondary complications. One of the challenges around that is to figure out a strategy, a core strategy that will get you there. And... The triad of quality, value, and access is a classic business triad. It's easy to optimize two, but usually at the expense of the third. The strategy we settled on was to try to transform the existing model of critical care, very much a craftsman model where every patient was unique, no two patients were treated the same, into a high reliability model where we had very consistent approaches and predictable outcomes. Then the question was, do we have the right workforce? We had the same workforce found at every academic health science center, dedicated critical care nurses, and there's no safety device ever been invented that will ever outperform an experienced, well-trained critical care nurse. They're the constant workers at the bedside. We have our cyclic workers. These are typically attending physicians who rotate onto the unit for a week and then rotate off. And then we had our transient physicians, typically residents, who would come into the unit for a month at a time, but then leave. And we couldn't figure out a way to take that workforce and generate the type of high-reliability care that everyone thought was necessary. So we had two choices. We said we could either abandon our core strategy of high-reliability care, or we could change the workforce. We chose to change the workforce. And our operations plan at the Emory Critical Care Center is to put a critical care qualified advanced practice provider at every bedside 24-7. Today, we employ around 80 such individuals in our system.
0: And this actually leads to my next question, which is what are some models that do work for the integration of nurse practitioners and physician assistants into the ICU? So for your center, which is academic, it probably presented challenges different from that of, for example, community hospitals. Since you have a dual mission of education as well as clinical work and community hospitals where its entire focus is on clinical work, but both types also have financial concerns. So I would love to hear your experiences and your thoughts about these two different models and how you answered the various concerns.
1: One of the remarkable experiences of advancing the principle of using affiliate providers, advanced practice providers, has been the discovery of how easily they integrate in a variety of practice settings. As you point out, in the community environment, which is typically starved for intensivists, the ability to use them as extensions is self evident. They serve to cover a much larger footprint than any intensivist could cover alone. In the classical teaching environment on services that have traditionally been populated by physician fellows, medical residents, and medical students, they've taken on that role, but they've taken on additional roles. Typically what will happen is that patients will be allocated to the advanced practice provider service or to the resident teaching service with the attending intensivist supervising both services during the course of a day. But more importantly, because the advanced practice providers tend to be dedicated to that unit, they become very knowledgeable about unit principles and processes. They become very good at recognizing patients who are off trajectory. And we find increasingly that the advanced practice providers are the ones who are providing direct instruction to the uh, medical physicians, particularly in their early years of ICU rotations. They understand how the unit functions. They can support the uh, physicians in training, in integrating into the team for the short periods of time they tend to be there. And as a consequence, they develop mutual respect for one another, which is really wonderful to watch. Do they share patients
0: or do they get assigned different patients as the.
1: Assignments tend to be, uh, it's a great question. Consider what happens when a physician trainee is responsible for a patient. Under the rules of the various residency review committees and the ACGME, that physician trainee often has to go to seminars, has an outpatient clinic, is required to take strategic naps, and may, in fact, be on only every fourth night. But the patient is going to be in the ICU continuously throughout that period. So there has to be a relationship that allows easy handover from the physician trainee to the affiliate provider and back again. It does become a mutually supportive relationship, and the most successful physician trainees will view the advanced practice providers as their partners in care of the patient.
0: Do you have didactic rounds, and are all the team members present? Do you have different work and didactic rounds for the various individuals? How, how does that work?
1: Teaching rounds tend to occur across all patients. One of the advantages of having advanced practice providers integrated into these units where there are also teaching services is one of them can wear the fireman hat role. So, that when things come up during rounds, there can be an advanced practice provider who is assigned that day to deal with the inevitable events of medication being required, ventilator needing to be adjusted, a new admission coming in. And that really facilitates the conduct of the teaching rounds. That's just one example of how affiliate providers can integrate and support the teaching mission. There are many others. Right. And how does the process of training them occur? This is an absolutely critical aspect of integrating advanced practice providers into critical care services. Historically, what was done was that the new advanced practice provider coming to an ICU service was given a white coat, a stethoscope, a pat on the back, and a wish for good luck. That didn't work terribly well. It wasn't effective preparation. The second thing that happened was relatively focused on the job training, understanding there had to be a period of one-on-one apprenticeship or mentorship before that individual was ready to fly solo as it were. That still exists in some contexts and in some locations. Our view is that adult education needs to be structured and it needs to be competency-focused. It's one of the reasons why we developed the very first residency program for affiliate providers in the country that takes both nurse practitioners as well as physician assistants and trains them up to a common set of competencies in critical care medicine. By competencies, I mean the knowledge and the operational knowledge that can be applied. I mean skills such as placement of invasive lines, and I mean attitudes that allow them to work effectively not only with families in crisis, but also with the diverse members of the caregiving community, whether they be attending physicians or consultants or respiratory therapists or pharmacists or nutrition support specialists, allow them to work effectively with all of those groups and to integrate their recommendations and advice into a coherent approach to the patient.
0: Were there any surprises for you during this integration process?
1: There are always surprises. The best surprises were how well our acute care nurse physician trainees and our physician assistant trainees work together. Despite the fact they come from very different traditions and very different approaches, their enthusiasm, their willingness to support one another in the training program has been just a delight to watch. And it pleases me that the two communities of PAs and ACNPs who we've trained up in critical care see themselves as a common whole. It is the rule rather than the exception that an ACNP will hand off to a PA and back again.
0: I see. I wanted to ask you a little bit more also about the workflow in the ICU with this multidisciplinary approach. If I think on the fly about care process that occurs for each individual critically ill patient, when they first come in, there is a period when we are trying to diagnose their problem list, and then we come up with a treatment plan, and then we try to implement that treatment plan and try to deal with any unforeseen changes in the clinical condition or deal with the complications. How would this multidisciplinary team divvy up those various stages of the process?
1: So let me ask you and ask our listeners to think for just a moment about their own ICU as it exists today, to ask what percentage of the patients in your ICU at this moment are truly acutely critically ill. By that I mean their brain is swelling, they can't oxygenate, the patient is in hypovolemic shock because they've bled out, they're in septic shock. What percentage of the patients actually fit that description? I've asked this question around the world of ICU directors and medical attendings, and I always get the same answer, somewhere between 15 and 20%. And it's very clear that Those patients benefit from the immediate participation intervention of a highly experienced physician. The wheels are coming off the bus, as it were, and we're trying to keep the bus upright. Most cases, we are able to identify and control the underlying process. The bleeding gets stopped, the pus gets drained, whatever it happens to be. And then they become part of a second class of patients that I refer to with uh, appreciation of my pediatric colleagues as feeders and growers. These are patients who should improve provided they get tender loving care, appropriate support and uh, recognition of problems. Those patients don't really need a physician. They need an advanced practice provider, a set of protocols and the experience to recognize when the patient is veering off trajectory. There's a third group of patients in our units. This is a group that I tend to refer to as bed and breakfast patients, typically patients on their last day in the ICU or else simply high intensity monitoring patients. They don't really need a physician either. They're just there to make sure that the vital signs are not going awry and they're being prepped for transfer out to the general ward. And those folks don't need a physician. And then finally, we're seeing this expanding group of chronically critically ill patients. They come in two general flavors. The first is the frequent flyer, the patient who uh, is well known to both the emergency department and the ICU because they have a problem that frequently exacerbates. It might be the cystic fibrosis patient with an infection, or the congestive heart failure patient who is unable to get the prescriptions filled. Either way, they come into the unit. They tend to be sick for a little while. Everybody knows the patient. Everybody knows what to do. And a couple of days later, they're well enough to leave. There's another chronically critically ill patient. These are patients who often are on large lists of medications. Sometimes they come from nursing homes. And they have been medically tuned to a point of stability. And then something happens maybe they have a small pulmonary embolism or a urinary tract infection or an exacerbation of their COPD. All that tuning suddenly unravels. They end up in the ICU on multiple supports, And we come in and we say, hmm, those folks do need a physician, but mostly to identify what the problem is in each system. I often describe this as, picking up the rock and making sure we recognize what crawls out from under it for each of the various systems. And then we put the supports in place. And unfortunately, because many of these patients have multi-system disease and comorbidities, they change very slowly. They look the same on day 2 as they do on day 12 as they do on day 22, despite our best efforts. Do those patients need a physician? Absolutely, on day 1. Once the plan is in place, What's required is close attention, standardized care, and recognition when something is going awry. If you think about all the things that I've said, we probably have about one-fourth of the patients at any one time who really require focused attention of a physician. Now the question is, for the future, how we divide the labor so that we have the right people working up to the... Maximum level of their skills and their credentialing to effectively care for patients. Thank you
0: for that. That was very informative. And I wanted to also ask you about your financial considerations when establishing an advanced practice practitioner program?
1: What a great question. You know, money is in short supply, and it's going to become even shorter as we make the transition from what I call World A, which is fee-for-service, to World B, which is lump-sum payment for episodes of care. We have to drive value. And, in fact, advanced practice providers create value. When you look at the salaries of residents, advanced practice providers, hospitalists and intensivists, you quickly recognize that advanced practice providers are relatively inexpensive to hire. Importantly, because they are licensed professionals and provided they are not on the Medicare cost report, they can issue charges for professional services rendered Commercial insurance will typically pay 100% of what a physician would charge. Federal government for care of federal beneficiaries will pay 85% of what a physician would charge. But if those charges would otherwise not be generated, they couldn't be captured. And particularly for unsocial hours, nights, weekends, and holidays, where there may not be an attending physician around, this is an excellent way to recover fair reimbursement for the professional services they render. In our experience, with careful management, which means getting the right number of patients assigned to an affiliate provider, getting the shifts right, managing handovers, managing procedural assignments, they can pay for themselves so that the cost justification becomes easy. But more importantly, you can't find the physicians to hire. Again, going back to the changing demographic of the nation, the demand for critical care services, and the relative production attrition rates of critical care physicians, they're in very short supply. It sounds like this model
0: will realistically expand the number of critical care health providers that are out there to take care of our increasingly large
1: number of critically ill patients? It's my belief that this workforce is essential to meet the national need today and probably for the next 15 or 20 years. Bear in mind that for the next 15 years in these United States, as it's been for the past five, every day 10,000 Americans turn 65. Today, tomorrow, all the way through 2030. So it's an extraordinary thing to watch the baby boomers get to Medicare age. And we want to survive. We want to live great lives so that the number of people who are going to be in this age group potentially requiring critical care is going to accumulate. We need this community of providers, and we need their expertise if we're going to be treated safely in a timely fashion and effectively.
0: Do you have any advice to various hospitals and groups thinking about
1: initiating an integrated system
0: for their ICU?
1: It's very important for every hospital, every healthcare system to look at their critical care delivery strategies. You may be in an academic environment with a guaranteed high flow of physician trainees. In those very rare instances, it may not benefit you to acquire advanced practice providers. But for the community hospitals and really for the majority of academic health science centers, you'll find that you do need these individuals. You also need a way to continuously produce these individuals. In my view, the best thing that one can do is to first hire two or three experienced critical care providers from one of the other programs, and then to set up an internal training program so that these individuals can be brought to the Health Science Center, socialized and onboarded, in such a way that they meet the philosophies, the care principles, and the approaches designated by the medical staff. And that allows them to be most effectively integrated into the life of the unit and the care of their patients.
0: Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Buckman. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I am Dr. Ludwig Lin.
2: Gain implementation strategies for a more effective and lasting application of the pain, agitation, and delirium, PAD, guidelines at the ICU Liberation and Animation Conference to be held September 9th and 10th, 2015, at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, USA. This conference is held in partnership with SCCM and Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Visit www.sccm.org slash I-C-U Liberation to register. Ludwig Lynn, MD, is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Bates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lynn of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email care at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.